I am one of those lingering survivors of our almost extinguished race. I am one of the few stalks that still remain in the field where the tempest of the revolution has passed. I fought the British for your sake. The British have disappeared and you are free. Yet for me have the British taken nothing, nor have I gained anything by their defeat. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are changing gears slightly. We're talking to Mr. Robert Riles, a public historian. He has a master's in library science and master's degree in history from Florida State University. So welcome, Robert. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here today. Robert, you're a public historian. Tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you do in, in that field. I was interested in public history several years ago. One of the reasons why I wanted to go into this field was because it is a way of relating information to the general public. Academic historians certainly have their place, very, very important place in terms of being able to discuss the finer points of history in different perspectives. What I, as a public historian, do is I take that information and compact it down in such a way that it is easily digestible to the general public. It's kind of like a computer scientist to work on the, uh, whatever the, the language is in, in writing programs, and then you have the guy who sells it to the general public. That's is a that, great way of putting it, it yes. We, we are not the programmers, per se. Right. What we do is we make it easy for people to understand, to work the program, work the application. Well, I find it fascinating that, uh, that you have gotten into this, and, and you are right. There are several different types of historians out there, and a lot of times they actually butt heads. But your particular way of bringing history to life is great for the general public, for, for the everyday man. And what I found very uh, reassuring and affirming uh, when I heard you talk at the Hanging Rock Battlefield dedication uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you did a fantastic job, and I'd like for our listeners to, to hear a little bit about what you said. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about the role of the Catawba during the American Revolution, and we're talking about the Catawba uh, Native American tribe. Is that correct? That's exactly right. right. Yes, uh, the Catawba Native Americans, specific to that group of Catawba that lived in the upstate of South Carolina in their traditional homelands. So when I first approached you, you wanted to make sure that I told our listeners that you were looking at this from the viewpoint of someone who is not a part of the Catawba Nation. And so you wanted to make sure that our listeners understood that. And, uh, and so I think that's a valid point. Uh, so as, as we go forward, I'm going to turn it over to you, but I wanted, I wanted our listeners to be reminded of that. Yes, Eric, that, to me that is a very important point because from a white's perspective, a white is going to come from it using a very specific approach that focuses on documented historical facts that come from the historical records. Native Americans have their oral traditions. And some of those oral traditions are not necessarily passed on to white culture. And also, out of respect and deference to their experience, it is necessary for us to acknowledge the fact that we are not a particular people. 
I got it. You're drawing on several references as you as you have this uh, this sit down recording with us. What what are some of the references you're drawing on? The perspectives that I'm drawing on, one comes specifically from a book that's titled The Indians New World, Catabas and Their Neighbors from European Contact Through the Era of Removal. I know that's a long title. <laughs> but the 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 author is James H. Merrill, okay. who is an ethnohistorian. Well let's get into it. So uh, tell us tell us a little bit about the Catawba Nation during the Revolutionary War. Well if, if we could, I would really like to start off with a quote by one of the Catawba who was, based on my knowledge and based on my reading, the only Catawba warrior who served in the American Revolution, who received a pension from the state of South Carolina after the war. Okay, and uh, for our listeners, the pension uh, pensions that he received, the application process didn't come till the 18, well into the 1800s, well after the Revolutionary War. So we're talking many of these heroes and fighters of the Revolutionary War had already passed away. So uh, it's not unusual. It's not like they uh, did not give pensions to the Catawba just because they didn't want to. It was just the natural way of history and, uh, and aging, the aging process and the way things happen. So. Yes, that, that's absolutely correct. This pension application was made about 40 years after the fact. Wow, wow. And uh, it's, it's an interesting, the, the account of the pension is really, really striking, and it gives a really good idea of what the Catawba were experiencing after the revolution, 40 years afterwards. This is the preamble to the pension application for Peter Harris. And I read, I am one of those lingering survivors of our almost extinguished race. I am one of the few stalks that still remain in the field where the tempest of the revolution has passed. I fought the British for your sake. The British have disappeared and you are free. Yet for me have the British taken nothing, nor have I gained anything by their defeat. I pursued the deer for subsistence. The deer are disappearing and I must starve. God ordained me for the forest and my ambition is the shade. But the strength of my arm decays and my feet fail me in the chase. The hand which fought for your liberty is now open for your relief. In my youth, I bled in battle that you might be independent. Let not my heart in my old age bleed for the want of your commiseration. Now those words were not written by Peter Harris per se. Those were words that were crafted by a senator uh, from the Charleston district, uh, Senator Crafts, who was also an advocate for the underdog during that time. But it, it is striking. It is striking what had happened to the Catawba in the years after the American Revolution. And it really does speak volumes to the fact that they had served. There are some estimates that the Catawba population was as many as 6,000 in the year 1670 and had shrunk to approximately 600 people by the time of the American Revolution. 
by far, on a per capita basis, they contributed more to the war effort than comparative to whites on a percentage basis. It is interesting when you, uh, and I have lived in this part of the country for a long time, the Catawba have, have been a mainstay in this area. Uh, the representatives to our government, uh, John Spratt and, and his family, have represented uh, this area for the longest time, and they can trace their original home place back to the Catawba. So the Catawba are intertwined in this area and intertwined in our story of freedom. And uh, Peter Harris's words uh, are poignant in, in this discussion of liberty and, and how we became a nation. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned the Sprats because it was Thomas Kanahua Spratt Sr who was the ancestor of the present Spratt family, who adopted Peter Harris at the age of three years old in 1759. Because Peter Harris's parents had both succumbed to the smallpox epidemic. It was smallpox and the scourges of alcoholism that really decimated the tribe and other Native American tribes throughout the American South and really throughout the entire continent with uh, contact with Europeans that decimated their numbers. So Peter Harris had one foot in the Catawba world and another foot in the white world. He was orphaned at three and raised by the Sprats, but he never forgot the fact that he was a Catawba warrior. And the Catawba Nation, by the time of the American Revolution, had really proven themselves to be fierce warriors, not only among the whites, but also among other Native American competitors, especially the Cherokee and the Shawnee. It's interesting to note that the Catawba could have sided with either the Whig Patriots or the British during the war. In fact, it would have made sense for them to align themselves with the British, right. quite frankly, right. if you think about it. As outsiders, they could have easily negotiated that way by aligning themselves with the Cherokee as well, who in fact aligned themselves with the British, but they didn't. So we have to ask ourselves, well, well, why didn't they? Well, you see, Native American politics, it makes for strange bedfellows, you could say. Both the Catawba and the South Carolina colonial authorities had concerns about the Cherokee. The Patriots really needed allies, especially after the growing concern that the Cherokee would align themselves with the British, in which they ultimately would. And this really had concerns for the Catawba because the Cherokee had many more, many more people than the Catawba had. And the Catawba and the Cherokee had been competitors, uh, really enemies for quite some time. 
And so one of the reasons why the Catawba aligned with the Patriots during that time is because they knew that at some point, even if they had aligned themselves with the Cherokee, that political alliance, alliance would fracture yeah. over a period of time, and that's based on their own history. So they had an understanding of their own history and, and these types of politics. So by aligning themselves with the Whigs, that was a form of protection for them yeah. as well. And then, of course, there's the economics, the economics of trade. And it's really interesting because in, in July 1775, William Henry Drayton, who was the um, president of the South Carolina Council of Safety in Charleston, explained in part why South Carolina was in such a state of rebellion. And this was his, I guess you could call it his, his marketing plea or his sales strategy to get the Catawba to come into the, the Patriot fold. And uh, I, I read from, from a letter. The great king wants us to pay four deerskins for those goods which we used to buy for two. We are sorry for this, for the white people will be obliged to make you buy your blankets and your match coats, your shirts and your rum, a great deal of deers. We, your brothers, think the bad men about the king may persuade him to send his redcoats to New York or Virginia or to Charlestown to try to take our money, whether we will or not, and to make war. So in a nutshell, Drayton is explaining to the Catawba the economics of what has been happening, the same type of economics that caused the Boston Tea Party, for example, and other incidents before the outbreak of the war, the economics. And by appealing to the Catawba, he was also appealing to their self-interest because it affected them. By this time, they realized that it was in their best interest to maintain that relationship with the Patriots and to support them in this cause, in part because it affected their economic interests as well. And also, there is just the simple reality that who do you trust? The people that you know that are your neighbors, that are eventually, yes, encroaching on your lands, but these are people that you know versus people that come from a long way overseas that you may not have seen in a long time or in a great period of time. The Catawbas chose to go with people that they knew. And it's a tough situation for these Catawbas because if they had a, a, a bigger population at the time, they may have had a different viewpoint on how they handled this diplomacy uh, at the outset of the revolution. So the fact that their numbers had dwindled because of disease and wars and those sort of things, that caused a different type of uh, uh, understanding or a different um, decision-making process within the Catawba Nation. So interesting that uh, that Drayton used the the economics to pitch pitch his idea, his sales pitch. Yeah, and this was uh, his attempt to uh, really, in a sense, using white man's ways to politically uh, 
manipulate the Kitaba in a sense. But the Kitaba, were, they were pretty intelligent. They, they weren't dummies. They, they knew what was going on. I think we have a tendency to think uh, in our present day that everyone that came before us were dumber than us. Right. <laughs> right? We right. have a tendency to have this, uh, th this idea, but really and truly, these are smart, these are smart people. They, they have survived for a reason, right? They survived for a reason, and they demonstrated themselves to be skilled diplomats, too. Long before the revolution, there was King Hagler, or Hagler, however you want to pronounce his name. And he was a very skilled diplomat in his own right. The, the leaders that followed him weren't necessarily as adept as Hagler. However, as a nation, the, the Kataba knew how to leverage the skills that they had as fierce warriors to manipulate one governor over another governor or another governor during that French and Indian War period, and also use that same fierce reputation during the American Revolutionary War period to their advantage. Uh, what are some of the battles that, uh, that these guys participated? Was it just a one and done type of thing with the Catawba, or were they, did they just come in at the very end, or when, when did they start uh, really putting boots on the ground for the colonists? Well, that is a fantastic question, Eric, because if you think about the role of the Catawba during the war, they, they're really three different pieces to this. The first piece is the military service itself, specifically in the South Carolina and North Carolina militias. But I'm going to focus more on the South Carolina militia. The role in, as being good scouts and sur surveillance for militia forces. And then the third role is more of a civilian type of role. And by that, I mean providing sanctuary and a place for supply, provisioning, and recruitment. For example, uh, prior to the war, in August 1771, Governor Bull in South Carolina commissioned John Alston of Georgetown to raise a company of Catawba, which is responsible for leading, training, mustering, and exercising them for military discipline and really policing the low country for, uh, for escape people of African descent. And that was a service that continued dur during uh, and through the American Revolution. In October 1775, Samuel Boykin, under the command of uh, Colonel Kershaw, formed his company of Catawba Rangers. And Boykin and 34 of these Catawba were responsible for scouting, capturing, runaway African people in St. George, Dorchester, St. Paul, other low country areas. And in December 1775, and again, this again, this is very, very early in the war. Right, this We're is before even the Declaration of Independence. Long before, moment. yes, long before, even though the fighting had broken out right. in the North, uh, with the exception of the Snow Campaign in 1775, there was relatively little fighting to, per se in in South Carolina. Now, when the war did come for a brief moment with the Battle of Sullivan's Island in June 1776. Uh, the Catawba were there as well under the combined forces of Captain Boykin's raccoon company, as they were known. 
What a cool name. That is a cool name. Yeah. I love that name. And Lieutenant Withers, Lieutenant John Withers uh, Company of Catawba. That was affiliated with jo Joseph Kershaw. And that comprised you know, a, a good contingent of Thompson's Rangers, which were, which were all present there too. And there is an interesting account that was made by a British observer during the battle in which he, he made this, I want to say somewhat sarcastic, but also somewhat joking reference to the Catawba when they were in retreat on the beaches where the British forces were firing upon them during that time. And this British account made reference to them jumping around, hooping and howling, and firing their rifles behind their backs. But at the same time, in the same account, this same British source also mentions that the bullets that they were firing were coming awfully close to him and the other British that were, that were firing upon them. So that kind of gives you a sense of the fact that they were fearless, even in the face of being caught in open gunfire, even then. And then not long after that, in the Battle of Sullivan's Island, the next month, July of 76, they were on the Cherokee Expedition. They were uh, with a battalion of men from the New Acquisition District, which is here in present-day York County, under the command of Major Frank Ross. And it's really interesting what one historical observer at the time, Maurice Moore, has to say about that expedition and about the skills of the, of the Catawba, if, if I may. And I quote, Major Ross pushed on they drew near the Kiwi towns. Every effort was made to avoid falling into an ambuscade, which might be laid by their cunning foe, the cunning foe being the Cherokee, of course. An advance guard was composed of 125 men with an additional 25 Catala Indians, who were valuable auxiliaries. They were placed in the front ranks and would often pause in the march, examine with the greatest care the bark of the tallest trees to ascertain if they had been recently ascended, for it was the practice of the Southern Indians in their warfare to have a certain number of climbers to look out, as well as runners, to bring in news. It was not long before they descended a cove. Here the Catawbas made a halt, pointing to the wild pea vine and rank weeds freshly broken and trampled upon, which gave evidence that some numbers of feet had recently traversed this space. They advised that the advance guard should remain here until the main body of the army came up. So, if the Catawba had their own interest in mind of playing a trick on the whites, mm -hmm. that would have been a perfect opportunity to do so. But they didn't, and right. it shows a sense of integrity. It also shows that they understood that this was a time in which what I referenced earlier, it was politically expedient to help out the whites in their campaign against their traditional enemies, the Cherokee, right? And if I may, I'm going to go on with this. The quick eye of the Catawba was caught by a few cornfield beans scattered here and there. A minute survey showed them on a flat rock the footprint of a naked foot. It was incontrovertible proof that the enemy was near at hand. The Indians now refused to go on until the remainder of the army came up. In spite of the Catawba's protests, the white men went forward, but they had not gone more than 400 yards when they were attacked by the Cherokee, who routed them. 
So, you know, it, it is interesting that the Catawba were valued for the skills, yet at the same time, you still have the arrogance of some military leaders that decide to, to rush in. Sometimes schools do rush in. So by that account, also point out that the Catawba knew exactly what they were doing and that they were willing to, to give their skills. And they also allowed the white man to make his own decision there about what he was going to do. But they, knowing what was going to happen, they decided to stay back. And that was probably the smarter, the more wiser choice. But there were also other examples of where the Catawba served during the war. In, in 79, there were 45 warriors that are part of Captain David Garrison's company from the new acquisition district that were part of Benjamin Lincoln's expedition into Georgia. And what we had talked about the other day at Hanging Rock Battlefield, they were part of Thomas Drennan's company of Catawbas, who was there at the Battle of Rock, Rocky Mount on August 1st. And at that engagement, it wasn't just whites that were killed. There was one Catawba warrior whose name was Willis, simply named Willis, who had been killed in that battle. And he left behind a wife and child as a, as a result. So they sacrificed. That Catawba could have easily have said, no, I'm not going to rush on the battlefield there. And instead he did. You know, he was one of several Catawba that were there that risked their lives. And then we also know that uh, the Catawba were there at the Battle of Hanging Rock just, to, just a few days later. They served on the front lines there as part of Davy's force to guard the Waxhaw Creek. And they also had the need to do that because their settlements were not far from there at all. And at, at Hanging Rock, they are credited with saving the life of uh, a Captain Robert Craighead of the Mecklenburg Militia. And uh, according to one source, Craighead was severely wounded in the shoulder and he would have died on the field of battle had it not been for the kindness of a Catawba Indian who carried him to a place of security and aided his escape in a wagon. And that Indian reputedly paid Craighead a yearly visit until Craighead eventually moved on from, from the Carolinas to Tennessee. What a great story. It is a great story. Well, and it's uh, just a microcosm of all the, all the events that happened in the backcountry of South Carolina uh, and, and, and shows just how important it was. I mean, we were talking, uh, the Battle of Waxhaws happened, and then you talked about Rocky Mount, and then you talked about the Second Battle of Hanging Rock. After the Second Battle of Hanging Rock, then we get into the Battle of Camden, which was a huge issue when everybody, when, when the Patriots lost. It was a huge issue for the Catawba and all the settlers just north of Camden. Yes, in the wake of Camden, there was a great evacuation and that certainly affected the Catawba as well. There are some accounts like in Wynn's account of the Catawba. He was not particularly kind to the Catawba. He, in a tongue-in-cheek, well, maybe not so tongue-in-cheek fashion, characterized the Catawba as being cowards that would run off the field of battle and that they had run off into Virginia. And it's, it's not a fair treatment because 
Yes, the, the Catawba evacuated to Virginia for the sole purpose of making sure that their wives and children were in safe sanctuary. They returned. Right. They, they in fact, after they got them settled, came back and you find them with uh, such generals as Pickens. When Cornwallis was chasing after Nathaniel Green, they aligned themselves with Pickens, who was over the North Carolina militia at that time. So uh, yes, they came back down. They did. They were at 96. They were at the Hawes River, also known as Pyle's Massacre in 1781, also at Guilford Courthouse in, in March, and then later in September at the Battle of Utah Springs. So they didn't just stop at Hanging Rock and just flee, flee after Camden. They came back when in, a, in an essence, that was a suicide to, to do so, if you think about it. I find it interesting that if you go back and, and read some of these pension applications that you see people, uh, well, I volunteered for service for a six month period or a three month campaign or you know, maybe 12 months or something. But uh, I find it interesting and ironic in many respects that the Catawba volunteered to fight from 1775 all the way up to the British left. That is correct. I mean, they were in it to win it. They were in it to win it. When they said that they were going to bring the fight, they, they were going to bring the fight. It, it and is. when they said that, I mean, there, there is a, what, what you have to admire about that is the sincerity of their cause. It was about forging these relationships on a deeper level with white settlers that they had known, some of them from an early age up, and then some that were new friends that had come into the area. And yeah, I mean, I don't want to idolize. I don't want to make it seem like it's all rose-colored glasses there. Mm -hmm. there. There were points of contention, and there was friction from time to time. But overall, the Catawba and the, and the white settlers got along pretty decently before the revolution and they aligned themselves and and also the the third component of how they provided aid and assistance to the whites was just by virtue of the fact that the Catawba said to Thomas Sumter you know in June 1780 and during really during the entire summer you are welcome to come to our lands and camp on our lands during this time. And Sumter took him up. Where was his camp? There were three different camps. The one that is most widely known is the one at Clems Branch, which is in Lancaster County, South Carolina. Today. It's right there at the North Carolina border. That is literally right there on the North Carolina border. And that border. was in Catawba land. And that, that was time. in Catawba land. And from where we are right now, here in Fort Mill, right. at the public library in Fort Mill, there were three camps that Thomas Sumter was at on Catawba land. You've got Clems Branch, you have Hagler's Hill, which is located on the Ann Springs Close Greenway. And then you have the Nation Ford Camp, which was on the west bank of the Catawba River. 
All right. All that was uh, on Catawba land. They played a prominent role in, in, uh, in a time when the British really had taken South Carolina. They really had. There was no force, no continental force, no force of uh, opposing the British except for this ragtag group of guys that got together and elected Thomas Sumter as their general, right? Yeah. And, then, and then the Catawba came and, and gravitated around this core group right here on the Catawba lands. And they pushed back against the British. Uh, I was talking to uh, Dr. Brooke Bauer from the Catawba Nation, and uh, we had her on a couple of episodes. And I asked her a question, what do you want people to take away from you know, this episode or from their visit to this community? And she said, we, the Catawba Nation, are still here. We live here. We have leadership positions here. You will see us at the grocery store. The Catawba Nation still exists. I think that is just a great thing to say and remind people that uh, these first peoples are still here. And they are partners with us in this thing that we call freedom. Yes, they have played a fundamental role in, in helping to shape that story of success in the American Revolution. And, you know, it is interesting, Eric, to look at what the state of South Carolina did for the Catawba after the American Revolution. In, in 1782, for example, the South Carolina legislature, they sent 500 bushels of corn to the Catawba at a critical time when they needed it. All right, and then a couple of years later, with Joseph Kershaw and Thomas Sumter leading the way, the South Carolina legislature also paid the Catawba goods about 299 pounds sterling for its services in the conflict, and then reimbursed them another 125 pounds sterling for livestock to provide the army. And there it seemed to be a gradual diminishing appreciation for their service. And that's why it seems that Peter Harris's pension record is a, a reflection of this great shining opportunity of a moment in which the Catawba and the Whigs were so closely aligned based on that common cause. And then gradually there just seemed to be this, this breaking away period within that 40 years mm. that had followed. It's kind of sad, but at the same time, if you think about it too, the Catawba were very proud of their service during the American Revolution. Um, there are interesting accounts in which the Catawba showed up at different m militia musters in the years after the war, especially here in York County. And there are accounts where the Catawba and the white soldiers from that time period marched, camped, fought, and died together during that time, and they kept alive those memories of those times, where they would share those recollections during the war, and where they would pause to talk about those times at Hanging Rock, Rocky Mount, Camp Catawba, and the fact that that happened really reflects this brotherhood, something that is shared 
by all men and women today when they serve in the military. So the same thing applied back then based on their experience. And, um, and yes, as uh, Dr. Bauer uh, reflected, yes, they are survivors. It's a fascinating story. Thank you for uh, in, informing us about this great story about Peter Harris and the background of the Catawba Nation here at the founding of our nation. How can people reach you if they want to take advantage of your skills? Yes, you can get a hold of me at my email address, which is RylesR, that's R-Y-A-L-S-R, at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you.